Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, we'll go behind the scenes of the FBI and learn about how they fight the shady criminal underbelly of humanity. One thing we'll learn about is the way technology is changing crime. So to start us off, I'll tell you how I use technology to discover secret information about someone. Information that for decades, both they and I thought was impossible to uncover. It's 9 p.m. on a December night just before Christmas of 2009. I see a car park in the driveway of a home in a pleasant neighborhood of Seattle. As I walk toward it, a short Latino woman steps out of the passenger side. A tall man steps out of the driver's side, and I wave to him and call out, Hi, are you Anthony? He says, who wants to know? I go, yes, well, um, my name's Chad, and I think I'm your son. His wife turns away and walks inside the house without a word. He stares at me for a moment, then says, What's this all about? Well, I say, that's a long story. answer was complicated, but it boiled down to this. I was conceived by artificial insemination from an anonymous donor. Now, I had a non-biological father, but he died when I was two years old in a drunk driving accident. So I always wondered who my real, who my biological father was. I wondered if I was like him, and I hoped that I would want to be like him. But as an adult, when I contacted the University of Washington Medical Center, a woman told me the records were sealed. However, with equal measures of curiosity and ignorance, I moved back to Seattle from the East Coast, hoping I could find a way to find my father. And I tried several offbeat, perhaps even far-fetched methods to find him. And one of them led me to this driveway where I'm giving an awkward, disjointed explanation to this man saying, I believe uh, my father was a student at the University of Washington, so I used state-of-the-art facial recognition software to scan the yearbooks from that time period for faces that resembled mine. And as I say all this, the man in front of me looks relieved. As if he thinks my methodology for finding him might not be totally sound. Before I finish, he puts up his hands and says, look, you've got the wrong guy. I ask, are, are you sure? He goes, I'd remember if I donated sperm. Then his tone softens and he says, look, I'm not the guy. Sorry. So after years of dreaming about finding my father, I realize I'll never learn the answer. I'll never know who my father is. So I give up on the idea and try to forget it. I lock the dream away, deep down inside of me, deep in my chest. 
frozen. Early last year, I told a longer version of this story at a local storytelling event. Afterwards, the man who runs the event said, Chad, you should try a DNA test. I said, I don't know. I gave up on this a long time ago. He said, DNA testing works. Even if you don't find your father, maybe you'll find some siblings. And then you can come back here and tell us the rest of the story. I said, well... Even if I found my father, it's not like he can be much of a father at this point in my life. But I am curious about siblings. So I waited a month, then bought a test from Ancestry.com. Once it arrived, I let it sit in my living room all summer. Finally, after about four months, I opened it up, spit in the little tube, and put it in the mail. A week passes. Two weeks. Three weeks. Then an email arrives that says my results are ready. But I'm flying out the door to go do a volunteer thing, so I have to spend the next several hours in heightened anticipation wondering about my results. It isn't until I get home at night that I click on the link in the email, look at my DNA matches, and discover my father isn't on the list. But I find three new siblings. Ancestry.com is weird. Unlike other DNA testing websites, Ancestry doesn't definitively say, this is your half-brother. Instead, it says, this could be your half-brother, but it could also be your niece, cousin, or even grandparent. So you have to use deductive reasoning and a pinch of common sense to decide whether a person is your sibling or some other relation. So as I stared at the screen and tried to write a message to my new siblings, I couldn't be 100% sure they were my new siblings. It seemed to me like they definitely were. But what if I was wrong? That's awkward. And what if they were and they didn't know they had been artificially inseminated? That's doubly awkward. And trying to figure out what to write to your new siblings is already hard enough. So I just sit there typing and deleting, trying to figure out the right thing to say. Hello there. Looks like you're my brother. Unless you're my grandfather. Ha! Ah, uh -huh. yeah. Well, I finally send all three siblings' messages. And then I wait. Hours pass. Nothing. The next day passes. Nothing. Finally, on the following day, I receive a reply. It's from one of the men. My hand shakes as I reach toward the computer to click on the message. When I read what he wrote, it says, yes, he and I are indeed brothers. And then he adds me to an email thread for siblings who are all from the same father. And I become not one of three, but one of six. 
As a child, I always dreamed of having a brother. Little did I know, I had lots of them. In fact, since doing my DNA test a few months ago, I've discovered I have a total of at least 10 new siblings. We live all over the country, but one of my sisters lives in Seattle, so within a couple of weeks, I got to meet her in person. Later, at 7 a.m. one Sunday morning, I got to chat with my brothers on a video conference call. And I've learned a bit about many of my siblings as they shared pieces of their life stories in our email thread. Through that, I've learned some intriguing things. Most of my siblings didn't find out they were from a donor until they were adults. Some didn't learn about it until they saw their DNA test results. And one of my brothers, who is a twin, discovered from his DNA results that his twin sister is only his half-sister. Think about that for a second. You see, the doctors mixed together the sperm from two donors. The sperm from one donor created my brother, while the sperm from another donor created his sister. The doctors did this sperm mixing thing in hopes of ensuring the anonymity of the donors, never guessing that DNA testing would soon make their efforts impotent. Speaking of which, there's still an unsolved question. Who fathered us all? Since our father wasn't on any of the DNA testing websites, it would seem his identity would forever remain secret. But nothing is impossible with some ingenuity and luck. So one of my brothers contacted a search angel and asked for help. Search angels are genealogy lovers who enjoy helping people uncover the secrets of their family trees. My brother gave our search angel access to his Ancestry.com account. Then, she looked at his DNA matches, went through various family trees, observed where the male lines connected and branched, and within three days, she sent us a detailed report that showed something I never thought I'd see. The name and picture of my father. He's a small-town doctor, a pillar of his community. He has a wife and two grown children. And from looking on the internet and Facebook, it's pretty clear he has a happy, loving family. The moment I saw that, it's like something in my heart melted. I'll never again have to tell anyone that I don't know who my father is. I do know. And, perhaps the biggest relief of all, I can say he's a good man. an example of the beauty of what technology can do. But there's a darker side to technology. To help us learn about that and how to protect ourselves, today we'll meet John Yonarelli, who spent over 20 years as an FBI special agent. During that time, he helped to investigate the Oklahoma City bombing, the 9-11 attack, North Korea's hack of Sony, and much more. John specialized in cybercrime, earning an honorary doctorate of computer science for his contributions to the field of cyber investigation. 
In our interview, John will share tips that can help you avoid losing thousands or even millions of dollars to cybercriminals. He'll explain a bit about the darknet, where the criminal equivalents to eBay and LinkedIn help like-minded maniacs connect. And he'll share a secret that, should you decide to commit some heinous crime and you get caught, a secret that can get your sentence cut down from 35 years to just four. Along the way, you'll hear stories about his father, who was a World War II prisoner of war for virtually the entire war. About the bright and dark spots of finding missing children. About the perks for his own children of having a dad in the FBI. And some of his best, worst, and most bizarre investigations. So put your hands up, remain silent, and enjoy listening to my interview with FBI Special Agent John Yonarelli. I know that your father had a really interesting life. Could you tell me about him? Uh, Sure. My dad had been in the Navy for 30 years. He actually uh, was in the Navy initially his first four years and waiting to get out when he was on the island of Guam, which was uh, attacked by the Japanese in World War II. He wound up being captured two days after Pearl Harbor and wound up spending the next four years in the uh, a prison camp in Japan. So as a result, with eight years in the Navy, not to mention the time for recovery in a naval hospital, he wound up staying in the Navy and making it a career for uh, 30 years. And you wrote a book about his experience during World War II. Tell me about that. I had taken my dad's stories, and uh, while he was still alive, I had him audio record them. Unfortunately, uh, due to some of the physical uh, beatings and treatment he had received in prison camp, he progressively lost his sight. And by the time I was 13, he was completely blind. When my dad passed away in 1990, sort of as a catharsis, I thought, you know, let me write up his stories. And I got very interested in it. And I traveled around the country for a couple of months, meeting with former POWs who had been with my father and taking their stories. And eventually what I did was I put together a book, uh, making my dad the primary author since his, his story. And I wrote up the stories of not only his experiences, but the experiences of other POWs as told by my father, uh, basically documenting an important piece of history. Uh, essentially, this group of men were the very first American prisoners of war during World War war two and spent the entire war in a prison camp so what are a few stories from that the story is really one of resilience it's about overcoming incredibly long odds and beyond that not being uh, detrimental or negative towards society my dad never confused politics and the war with the japanese people he always was very fond of the japanese themselves I remember growing up that uh, the family outing uh, was not to McDonald's or an American diner, but to a Japanese restaurant where my dad could go and converse. As a matter of fact, when he was uh, released from prison camp, one of the guards had bestowed upon my father a samurai sword as appreciation for how my dad interacted with uh, the folks. Wow. 
So when you were researching that and meeting some of these people that were there with your father, what is something you learned that was meaningful to you? Boy, they were a lot tougher than us. Uh, These people grew up with getting ahead and being successful meant finding a job where you could work 50 hours a week and feed your family. And that was their goal. Uh, So it took very little to make them happy. Whereas, you know, as a society, we've become a little soft in our expectations. But the other thing that uh, I saw from them is 201, after the war, all of them seemed to settle into a world where they could have peace and quiet. Nobody wanted anything grandiose, if you will. They were all looking for their own little corner of the world where They could be away from uh, noise, troubles, and problems. Many of them wound up going on to live life on farms. And I will tell you, my father, uh, he used to go to work every day. But when he came home, he used to go into his office, his den, settle down, and just enjoy the quiet of being home. And I think they'd all seen enough uh, in their lives and being POWs that uh, they didn't felt they needed to see any more. Yeah, I would imagine. Did your father exhibit signs of PTSD after that? All of them had issues to a certain degree. And how can you not in being exposed in such an environment where you're captive for four years? Of course, back then, we didn't think in terms of PTSD. There was no such thing as being psychologically analyzed or receiving any sort of counseling or medications were non-existent. I think back then the treatment was get over it. Uh, and that's essentially how they dealt with it. But again, they were a tough bunch. Do you feel your father's experience in life inspired you to go into the FBI? Oh, absolutely. I grew up in an extremely patriotic family. You know, uh, I should point out that my mom was in the Navy as well. And it's it's the typical Florence Nightingale story that uh, my dad was a uh, return home from being a prisoner of war. My mother was a Navy nurse and uh, they met in a naval hospital and wound up uh, becoming married as a result. Both of my parents who have since passed on are buried in Arlington Cemetery, which is quite an honor for the family as well. Actually, before we leave that, I'm wondering if they told you the story. Did he just start hitting on her from his hospital bed or how did they wind up romantically involved? Once my dad was released from medical care, he was actually assigned to a hospital and uh, he wound up uh, working. My dad had been a Navy corpsman, which uh, so he was attached to a group of Marines when they were captured. But when you're not at war, a job for a corpsman would be at a hospital and uh, assisting with medical treatment. Uh, was able to meet my mother in that way, and then eventually uh, developed a uh, a courtship that led to marriage. And of course, I think post World War II, well, most people were interested in coming home, finding someone, getting married, starting a family. It's not like today where we can date for years and years, and before we decide, they were rather quick to uh, because they also realize how fleeting life can be, and it's time to get on and do the things that matter most. Yeah. So you became a lawyer first to get into the FBI because you had to do either that or become an accountant. Uh, What was your experience with that? 
Well, I knew I wasn't going to make it as an accountant. Uh, the reality is that uh, you need a certain brain for that, that I'm just not blessed with. But uh, at the time, very few exceptions of getting into the FBI. It was made up of traditionally accountants or attorneys. I decided if I was going to get into the FBI, I was going to go to law school. And it worked out since getting into the FBI can be an arduous process. There's nothing happens quick with the government, with all the testing and steps you have to go through. So it took me about another two years from the time I finished law school until I was able to actually get into the FBI. But the great thing about law school is it provided me not only a means and mechanism to get into the FBI, but it's a great background for many, many things. You go to medical school, you can practice medicine. You go to law school and you can practice anything. And that's the uh, the beauty of it. And I've been able to apply it not just to the FBI, but to my life after the FBI as well. How so? What are some examples of how you use that? Well, as an attorney, which I am, uh, I view the world a little differently. I look at it as a series of uh, obligations and liabilities. Uh, so I've been able to steer clear of many things along that way. And also, as I go out now, my mission of teaching people how to remain safe using my FBI expertise, I'm also able to talk to companies about not just doing the right thing of keeping your your personnel, your employees, your customers safe, but the liabilities that they might incur if they fail to do so. And being able to speak that language eloquently, if they don't want to listen because of the moral reasons, usually they'll listen because of the financial reasons. Got to bring it down to the bottom line. Exactly. So, yeah, so it's been a good ride. And uh, the FBI, 21 years, it was a fantastic experience. And I wouldn't have it any other way. It was uh, the best thing I could have ever done with my life. Glad to hear that. So early in your career, you passed up the opportunity to join the FBI's cyber division. Why did you make that choice and how do you feel about that now? I was fairly cyber savvy for the time. Uh, you know, while people were just starting to think about the Internet, I was rocking away on Prodigy. I knew how to do a number of things on the Internet. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm very proud of when I came into the FBI, I wrote this whole proposal to the Bureau about how they should start a website, FBI.gov, and they can advertise fugitives and all these things and maybe look for public leads. And I submitted it to the suggestion office of the FBI and was turned down because at the time the internet was not really being used so much for business openly like it is today. And uh, they thanked me for my suggestion by sending me an FBI pad of paper and an FBI pen. <laughs> so with that, I thought to myself, you know, here I am. I'm trying to bring them into the 21st century. And I'm essentially being greeted with pen and paper and saying thank you, but no thank you. So when asked to join the cyber division back in 1999, my thoughts were, where am I going to go with this if it's not going to be supported? Uh, so I decided uh, at the time, if you wanted to make moves within the FBI, the traditional crimes, the bank robberies, the kidnappings, those were the investigations that were considered highly volatile, that were fast paced, uh, and people were judged on their ability to work such cases. And I decided I wanted to pursue that route 
so that I could advance, even if it meant simply being able to pick assignments that I wanted to have over others. However, 9-11, just a couple of years later, changed everything in the FBI. Aside from the fact more than half of the agents would now be working terrorism investigations. Very quickly, it was established there was a cyber nexus to everything we do. And so the cyber program started growing significantly. And within a time after 9-11, I was asked to come on to the brand new cyber division that was being developed. And then I knew this is where I need to be. The FBI was embracing it. The world had changed and I could be on the opening ground floor of creating something great. Now, I'm curious what these investigations were like. Uh, I know that one of your first investigations was that a four-year-old little girl was kidnapped and it became a cold case, meaning that it went unsolved. And you got the case nine years after it happened. So you get this very cold case. How do you approach it? In the FBI, no case is closed unless we can prove that, uh, for example, the subject is no longer alive uh, or that there, there's no the person has been brought to justice, essentially. Otherwise, cases can remain open indefinitely. Uh, to a certain degree, the Jimmy Hoffa case is still open because they haven't resolved whatever happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Certainly. I'm sure he's been killed and buried somewhere, but until they find him and technically someone's responsible for that murder. So that case will languish, uh, although with the time that's passed, it's unlikely anybody's still alive that was connected. Does that mean there's somebody who's in charge of that case in the FBI right now? I mean, is the file in the back of a filing cabinet somewhere or is somebody actively seeking Jimmy Hoffa? Well, in the 21st century, we have no filing cabinets. Everything's electronic, but uh, but I get your meaning. Now, uh, every case in the FBI, if it's still open and pending, is assigned to an agent. And so I, for example, when I was a young agent, I received a number of cases that were considered open and pending, probably not going anywhere. But nevertheless, it was my job to not only have the case, but not just let it sit. You were expected to do something with your cases at least once every 30 days, no matter what it was, just so the case continues to move. How many cases might you have at one time? You know, that's a great question. It depends on what you're assigned to. If you're on a very uh, complex white collar squad working Enron or Madoff type cases, you might have one case, maybe a couple leads, which are basically questions from another office, somebody else's case, that he needs you to go talk to someone in your jurisdiction to help him or her with an investigation. But if you're on a reactive squad or you're out in a resident agency where you do everything, I was probably carrying 40 cases at the time. Uh, On some of the Indian reservations where we do all the work uh, because Many don't have any sort of policing in its federal government property. Those agents will carry 80, 90, 100 cases at a single time. And uh, sometimes you'll say, I wasn't able to address anything in this case because I'm too busy with other work. But in the kidnapping case you asked about, I, I took a look at the file. I looked at everything that had been done. 
And I decided I would just start with some of the basics of taking an approach of, all right, who hasn't been spoken with yet? What other interviewing or investigative techniques can we utilize that haven't been taken on? And over nine years, technology changed as well. Uh, One of the things I did was I had pictures of the child when she was taken, but I also obtained pictures of the parents. Age progression technology was relatively new, and I had photographs made up of what the child would look like at age 13, presuming she was still alive. And then also the television show America's Most Wanted had just come on the scene only a couple of years before I was able to get them to profile the show. And that's one of the great things about television. And you can use the media to reach out to people. I had a number of leads come out of that. And one of the leads turned out to be pretty accurate. They had spotted somebody looking like the child uh, who was living with somebody who uh, was in a different state now, but used to reside in the area of where the child was taken. And uh, long story short, we were able to recover the child and take the person who had kidnapped her into custody. And uh, the child was reunited with her family. Of course, that raises other issues. There were psychologists involved because the child at age four had very little recollection of anything uh, prior to her being abducted. Well, I've heard statistics that most kidnappings are by family members. First off, was this kidnapper part of the family or were they just like a neighbor nearby? Also, did this little girl grow up thinking that her kidnapper was her parent? Uh, The child certainly treated the person who had taken her as a parent. You're right about the statistics. The vast majority of kidnappings are family related, but it's still kidnappings when you have custody issues. About 50 children a year nationwide are abducted by strangers. But think about that for a minute. That's a crazy number when you consider that 50 children each year go missing from their families. And, you know, there was a time in this country where we were putting pictures on milk cartons and such because there was such a backlog of children that had gone missing over the years at 50 a year for year after year, you had hundreds, if not thousands of children that had gone missing from stranger abductions. And that's what, for example, America's Most Wanted was born out of because the host's son was a a victim of a stranger abduction and his son was right. His son was murdered and he decided to turn his energies towards doing productive things. And his efforts led to my being able to reunite a family with their child. How did that feel when you succeeded in doing that? It felt good. And I'd had that feeling a couple of times because I had a number of kidnapping cases, some of which were family related, but still where you have parents that deeply miss their child because the other parent or family member has taken the child and run off. And it's a great feeling. But uh, unfortunately, I've also had other cases, including stranger abductions that didn't end well, where the child's remains might be found months later. And it would be years before we'd identify anybody who was involved. So while it's a great feeling and it's all about helping people, uh, you can't celebrate too long because there's a lot of work to be done and uh, you have to get back to it. Fortunately, I could tell you that was the great thing about the FBI. There, There's 12,000 agents in the FBI spread out worldwide. 
And if you think about that number for a minute, there's not a lot of us. I mean, nationwide, you have 750,000 uniformed police officers, and yet there's only 12,000 FBI agents to cover the world. You're never going to get rich being in the FBI. Uh, You work very long hours. Uh, You're scheduled to work an 11-hour day, five days a week. There's no such thing as overtime. So when you have to work longer hours, you just work longer hours. So I've worked nights, weekends, holidays. Uh, When 9-11 happened, we were all working 16-hour days, seven days a week for months. We're all driven by the same thing. Everybody in the FBI wants to do good things and help. And uh, what a wonderful environment to go to work every day and be surrounded by people like that. I, everything I talk about here today in my life pales in comparisons to some of the wonderful things that I saw other edge FBI agents accomplish. So that brings up something. Everyone there is doing all of this amazing work, but it's also emotionally taxing and you're working incredible hours. Does that mean you can't have a personal life? I mean, I imagine dating would be hard. Uh, Did you find strategies that helped you? Well, as I grew up in the FBI, as we say, and uh, became a supervisor and then a boss of supervisors and so on, I was much more in tune with that. And I certainly made mistakes along the way in how I managed my time. And uh, the words I used to impart to my agents was balance that you have to make the time for your families, your kids, your spouses, uh, because you could drown in the work and you can drown in it pleasurably because it's a great job. Sometimes working was more fun than going home, but that's not the right attitude to have if you want to have a successful family life. And so I used to impress upon the people who worked for me the importance of making time, taking days off, Uh, Because there's a lot of agents that will skip vacation time in lieu of getting work done because they're dedicated. At the end of the day, we all have to retire someday and we all have to go on. And the thing in the FBI, like most jobs in law enforcement, two days after you retire, they go on just fine without you. And that's because the job is not about me or any other agent. It's about the mission. For agents, you've got to make sure you have something to go on to afterwards, and that has to be the investment you made in other things, hobbies, family, certainly your uh, immediate family, children. I tried to do the best I can. I uh, I like to think I did an okay job. I've, I've got two great kids that I have a wonderful relationship with. They're both grown, and they got to see a lot from my life in the FBI that uh, other kids would never get experience. Do you mean the criminal side of the world a little bit of that but uh so there were certain events that uh, i might find a way for them to tag along if appropriate so uh when we had the opening of the world war ii memorial in washington dc i was in charge of security detail that day and uh all the living presidents united states attended and along with my wife and two children I had a case where we were recovering stolen congressional medals of honor, and we had recovered several medals that had been personally awarded by President Lincoln to soldiers during the Civil War. And uh, so I had my kids come on up to my office once, and they held the medals and explaining to them these had been held by President Lincoln 
at one time. And uh, before I turned them over to the, there's a museum for the Congressional Medal. Uh, before we turned the medals back over to them, uh, it was something that my kids were exposed to. And those sort of experiences uh, uh, were very neat. And, uh, and, and while that is all very uh, distinguished on, on another end of the spectrum, I met the person who drives the Wienermobile at one Super Bowl event that I was working and I conned them into stopping by my house when they were driving through the area where I lived outside of Washington, D.C. <laughs> so my kids were the envy of everybody else as the Wienermobile was parked in my driveway. <laughs> I have not seen the Wienermobile for quite some time, but I remember the commercials, though I have never seen it in person. And we've actually driven inside. So it's, again, the benefits of an FBI agent and raising children. I never would have put the two together. There you go. And, and, you know, of course, I uh, I spoke at every career day at my kids' schools, and it was always neat for them that uh, dad's career day was one of the most sought after, not because of me, but because the FBI carries a meaning even to uh, kids in uh, high school, and they want to check it out and see what it's all about. Now, I'm curious about the medals you mentioned. That sounds intriguing. What was the story behind what happened to them? Were they in a museum at one point or? So this is not actually an uncommon crime. There is a big market for stolen metals and the FBI's code name for it is Stolen Valor. And uh, so there were Congressional Medal of Honor recipients that had been fooled out of giving up their medals. Uh, someone very official shows up at the house and says they're changing the medal. I'm from the government. And uh, you're dealing with somebody perhaps in their 80s, a World War II veteran. That's so cruel. Terrible. And I need to take your medal, but I'm going to be back in a week replaced with the new medal. And then they'd go off and try to sell it somewhere. And we would set up sting operations to retrieve the medal. In the case of the medals uh, by Lincoln, they had at one time been in a collection that was privately owned that was stolen. But under the laws, you can't privately own those medals. So uh, when you're awarded the Congressional Medal, it's basically loaned to you forever by the U.S. government. So if you pass on, you can leave it to your family, etc. But it remains, continues to be owned by the government. So if you wanted to sell it to some country or somebody else, the government can come in and say, that's our property. We'll take that back. And uh, there's never been a case of anybody who's received the Congressional Medal wishing to sell it. But that's why people steal them and they try to trade in it because they're so rare on the market, basically. Exactly. And uh, and if you ever find somebody selling one, chances are it's going to be fraudulent because they're so hard to come by and they're highly accounted for. But we had a number of those cases. And uh, interestingly enough, when I was in the cyber division, that's where we work those cases because they were all being sold on the Internet. And that's how we were able to work those cases, identify IP addresses to figure out who is the person selling them and be able to track them down. Now, were people going on to eBay to sell these or were they part of the dark web or both sometimes? A little bit of both. You know, with the dark web, there's so much that goes on. And most people don't realize, you know, they get on the Internet, they're getting on. It's like an iceberg. They're getting on the top one seventh of the Internet that you can see. But below the surface, 
I've heard the term dark web, and I'm not even sure I fully understand. Well, let me take a minute and explain then. It's so for you or your listeners, you can go to just Google software tools to get on the dark net. Do not download or buy them. Okay. <laughs> there, there is nothing to be gained by going down a dark web because it's, it's all criminality, but it's that easy. If you have the software program, just like you need to have Google to be able to sell, send Gmail, you need to have a certain program to access parts of the dark net. And so it's nothing different than an application that allows you to access certain areas of the internet. You think of it in terms of you want to get on eBay, you got to download the eBay software. You're just downloading programs, but when you go into Darknet, that's where you find, for example, you'll find the eBay for criminality. You'll find a site where people will be hosting, hey, do you want to buy guns, drugs, etc.? And you can go in and make those sort of transactions. And one of the questions I'm asked regularly is that, well, why doesn't the FBI shut them down? Most of these websites are scattered all over the world. They're in third world countries and the FBI has zero jurisdiction outside the United States. We can only handle crimes within our borders. It's up to other countries. And while other countries may be concerned, cyber criminals can be very elusive and it takes a lot of resources to track people down. And if you're a third world country that's busy with just trying to do things in a modern fashion, fighting cybercrime may not be your highest priority. Sure. And I would imagine at times the country's government may be behind the cybercrimes. Uh, I'm sure if they're not directly behind, they're turning a blind eye because money has a way of flowing in corrupt nations. There's a lot of that. And uh, I will tell you, over the years, we've gotten more and more cooperation, the FBI, with other foreign countries. Uh, many countries that knew nothing about fighting crime in the Internet have turned to the FBI in helping to draft laws that can be used in their own countries to give them the ability. For example, you know, going all the way back, you may recall at around the time of 9-11, there was a lot of controversy about the Patriot Act and uh, the laws there. One of the things that existed prior to the Patriot Act, if you were the victim of a computer intrusion, technically it was illegal for the FBI to come and examine your computer because there were no laws in the books giving us the power to do that. One of the things the Patriot Act addressed was giving FBI jurisdiction to be able to do that. Uh, so unless a law exists, there's no way to enforce it. So that's why you have to have those laws and foreign countries are getting on board. Uh, certainly first world countries are there in many degrees, but the other problem is Cybercrime keeps changing. You know, what? We, if I was to talk to you today about the cybercrimes, have me back next year. We'll talk about something totally different. And we have to keep pace with what's happening so that way we can continue to enforce those laws. And the scale of it just seems to get bigger and bigger. There are all these hacks, the Equifax hack, the Yahoo hack. You were involved in investigating the Sony hack. First off, it sounds like it's growing to such a degree that at some point, the ramifications will just be mind-boggling. Now, you've said everyone in the United States can just assume their information has been hacked at some point. Is that right? Yeah, I would say there's two types of people out there. There's people that have are aware they've been hacked, and there's people out there that have been hacked and just don't know it yet. Uh, all of your information is out there. I, that is the reality of the world. Hack or no hack. 
we've gone digital, your medical records, everything else is now online. It's amazing what you can find if you know where to look for it. For example, our interview today, you're very well versed in my history. All of it's out there. It's easy enough to locate stories about me and uh, background information, and I can find the same thing out about you. And so people have to understand that with that, you can't hide. There's no such thing as obscurity anymore. And even if you had obscurity, people confuse obscurity with security. They're two different things. In this day and age, you've got to be doing some monitoring of the Internet to make sure you're safe. Uh, you don't have to do it yourself. There's a million services out there that do it. Uh, find a company you're comfortable with. Uh, pay a couple of dollars a month to have somebody monitoring your credit and your identity. You know, if you own a home, you have fire insurance, you're probably never going to have a fire, but you still pay fire insurance. You know, if I had a house and had a fire, what would you want to have? Would you want to have a smoke detector or would you want to have a fire extinguisher? Yeah, you'd probably want to have both if a fire broke out. Well, you want to have that smoke detector so that way somebody can alert you to the problem going on with your credit. But you also want to have that fire extinguisher, somebody who says, hey, here's the problem. We can stop this and we'll make sure uh, the credit bureaus don't do anything negative on your credit report because somebody's trying to open up a credit card in your name. So give a bit of the scale of this. You've worked with people who are small business owners or law firms, that kind of thing, and they've called you up and said, a million dollars just disappeared. Can you give a couple examples, maybe one where you were able to recover the money and one where you weren't? There's so many different types of cybercrime, but let me uh, talk to you about uh, what's called the business email compromise. And in this type of cybercrime, if, say, for example, you're buying a house, anybody who's bought a house knows they'll deal with the real estate agent. When it comes time to pay for the house, you'll have to go through a title company. What these guys will do is they will hack into the title company's email and they'll monitor the email traffic and they'll see, oh, uh, Chad's buying a house and he's going to close on this date. And they're going to wait for that wiring instructions to be sent to you in an email so you can wire the money. Wyatt Acquired, who is doing just that, and he um, he's significantly large home. He's a wealthy client, and he got wiring instructions in order to wire $3.4 million for the purchase of the house. Now, what he did was he wired $10,000 first to make sure it went through, went through just fine. Then he wired the remaining money. Well, what the hacker did was they let the $10,000 pass through. But then they emailed him back, said, got the money. Here's the wire instructions for the remainder. And they sent him wire instructions. That money went overseas. Now, in that case, he contacted me same day and I was able to track the money. I found that the money went over to Singapore. And from there, I was able to uh, work within the government and we were able to stop the transfer from the bank in Singapore. So we got all the money back. He was lucky because he did something rather quickly. A, a lot of times people don't know until days later when the title company will come back and say, hey, you never sent the money. And they'll say, yes, I did. I have proof. Now, if they hacked into the title company, of course, the title company is responsible. But 
that doesn't help you get your house. That doesn't help you get your money back. That may involve a lawsuit that could take years. Uh, so it's better that it doesn't happen. I had another client that was a medium-sized boutique law firm. They were handling a transaction for a client, and they wired a million dollars. That was the client's money. And uh, unfortunately, they were the ones that were hacked, and the client was sent fraudulent wiring instructions. The law firm wound up going out of business because they didn't have the insurance coverage to cover a million-dollar loss. That was a million cash, a lot of money to come up with. It can be devastating business. Uh, The losses are in the billions of dollars annually. That's a lot of money. Now, you say, for instance, with the Sony hack, which is just one hack, but a massive company, what were the losses in that case? Oh, God. Uh, Sony was uh, may very well have been in the billion-dollar range when you look at the loss of jobs, the loss of income. Remember, that was a lot of money put into a movie that was supposed to be released and make money. Uh, there's the loss of reputation and branding, etc. It's all very significant. And that's the weird thing. It basically boiled down to that it was about a movie. And, and that was enough for a country to decide to take action. Now, at the same time, though, uh, North Korea lost their Internet for about three days. And clearly, that's the U.S. government flexing its muscle, showing them, hey, we have the ability to take you offline. But when you look at how many people in North Korea actually have access to the true Internet, countries like North Korea, China, they control what sites their people can go to. So, for example, people who aren't on YouTube or Facebook or even using Google over in those countries. So what they can access on the Internet is extremely limited, whereas over here it can be devastating to us. So, again, it's the reason we need to use protocols and security because cybercrime can be very significant. And we're getting to the point where cybercrime can be deadly. We're seeing people are actually losing their lives because some of the cybercrime that's taking place in hospitals. Yeah. And then I'm curious about your take on self-driving cars, because I know those are connected to a network that can potentially be hacked. Do you feel self-driving cars can ever really be safe? Or will there inevitably be a terrorist group that manages to hack into the system and use it? If it's online, it can be hacked. But at the same time, if self-driving cars can be developed where they don't make the mistakes that humans make, I think that in the long run, that could become a safer form of transportation ultimately. And you have to have some ability for emergency override and that it can be shut down and preventing when a hacks being attempted. And when you look at our systems we have now for critical infrastructure, water, electricity, et cetera, we have that capability. So if someone tries to hack, we have the ability to reroute systems and prevent the hack from having any effect on services. I think you're going to see security continue to develop as the technology develops and our ability to track down these people who commit the crimes are going to increase as well. So it'll always be a balance. There'll always be people trying to press the outside of the envelope to see what they can get away with. And there's always going to be law enforcement there ready to respond as well. Has anyone ever tried to commit a cybercrime against you? 
Uh, well, I, I know that my uh, guests, <laughs> I have uh, I have had uh, my credit cards compromised, which, of course, means that somewhere I used a credit card that something uh, was able to take the information. I recently had my uh, phone service uh, was uh, my cell phone. I was contacted and asked, hey, did you just buy three uh, iPhones? from a store in Maine. I'm like, no, it wasn't me, but somebody was using my uh, Verizon account to do that because I've even been a victim. It It's why I have a service monitoring my credit report to keep me informed of what's happening and who can fix problems if they incur and make sure that uh, I'm also looking at my own credit card statements. I, I have a habit of every morning I turn on my computer I just take a look, make sure there's no charges that I'm unfamiliar with, and then go about my day. People need to get into habit. You lock your doors every night before you go to bed. Make it a habit of checking these sort of things to keep yourself safe. That's fascinating. Ironic in a lot of ways. I'm curious, at one point you were part of the SWAT team, right? That's correct. Now, my associations with that are what you see on TV. There's a drug bust and a door breaks down as in comes the SWAT team, guns blazing. I'm curious how realistic that is and what your experience was like. Did anyone ever shoot at you or did you have to shoot anyone yourself? Well, I fortunately, I went through my career. I never had to shoot anybody. I was in a couple of situations where shots were fired in my direction, but we spend a lot of time training, not just on SWAT teams, but every uh, FBI agent not just when to shoot and how to shoot, but when not to shoot. And if you have innocent people in the background, things like that, you're not going to return fire because you don't ever want to endanger anybody. Uh, it, you know, the thing about television is you'll see these trick shots shooting guns from people's hands uh, from a distance. And the reality is it's very hard to put a small little round on target when the adrenaline's flowing, people are moving, etc. So it, it you know, it's very easy to miss a target in the middle of something like that happening. I'm curious. So what's the story of the most intense experience you had like that? I've been involved in a couple of pursuits that ended in gunfire uh, as a police officer and uh, one time as an FBI agent. Uh, as far as SWAT goes, so my days on SWAT were uh, not nearly as glamorous as uh, television will make it out to be. I, I will tell you, you spend, you do respond to situations and you mobilize and you put on your gear and you go out and do something when called upon to do so. A lot of times it's planned, like they'll bring SWAT in to do a, an entry of a search warrant. And so you'll stage the day before, you'll have a briefing of what the operation is going to be so that everybody knows their position and their job. And then when you're not doing that, there is a lot of training involved. So every SWAT team member in the FBI, it's uh, a collateral duty out in the field. So you're an agent working investigations, but you also serve on a SWAT team. So you have to keep up with all your casework, but you're expected to go train with SWAT three days a month. And uh, so that's three days. You're probably going to be coming in on weekends or whatever to make up on the casework that you're supposed to be doing. What kind of training is this? So you're training on everything, uh, land navigation with a compass uh, so that you can get to obscure locations in the mountains when you need to set up. If we have to set up on, say, 
Ted Kaczynski's cabin back in the day, you're not going to go walk up on the cabin. You're going to hike maybe 10 miles around and come in from the back. And uh, so uh, likewise, you'll spend a lot of time shooting. You'll learn how to enter rooms as a team. Uh, learn how to rappel down so that if you're going to enter, maybe coming in from the roof as opposed from the ground. Uh, how to uh, come off of helicopters, whether it's fast roping or being dropped down on a scene and deploying from that type or a moving vehicle as it comes up onto the scene. Everything is done in training to make sure that people remain absolutely safe. I will tell you, in addition to the SWAT teams, every field office has one. The FBI also has the hostage rescue team, which is the elite of the elite. It is a full-time SWAT team. They're based out of Quantico. They can deploy anywhere in the world within two hours notice. They can depart. And so there's always a team on standby ready to fly out of Edwards. And uh, they are your elite folks that in many of the terrorism arrests that have been made overseas, the HRT team has been pulled in. There have been many events here in the United States where hostages have been taken that HRT has called in to make the rescue. The best of the best, like I said, many of them had former special operators experience in the military before coming to the FBI, and they train extremely hard. And you might have once selected, it's a two-week process just to see if you're eligible to join the team. Uh, and then after the two weeks, you may spend six months in training before you're ever actually decided, okay, now you're assigned to a team to be used. With all of these kinds of things, how you said you were trained to get off helicopters and jump off moving cars, I'm sure that as a kid, you had images of these kinds of things. Were there certain moments when you were doing these things when you felt like that little kid who's finally gotten to live their dream? You know, absolutely. I, I will tell you that in ninth grade career day at my school, an FBI agent came to talk, and that's where I decided that that's it. That's what I want to do. And I had always had the goal of becoming an FBI agent. When I finally got to the FBI, I found a lot of things that I had never considered. I, certainly, I didn't fantasize of the paperwork uh, and all the other things that uh, you have to do. One of the sayings we have in the FBI is, if it's not written down, it never happened. So we have to document everything. And that can be somewhat tedious at times. But on the other hand, there were things that I was like, I can't believe I just got to do this. And I would say whatever I fantasized, the career surpassed my expectations. What's an example of that? Well, certainly the kidnapping example we talked about before, I've had a lot of great arrests uh, uh, as a result of investigative efforts tracking down back robbers, tracking down fugitives, uh, kidnapping cases uh, where somebody was taken kidnapped over in the Mexican border and we were able to uh, uh, work with the government in Mexico and get the person freed who otherwise might not have survived. Uh, I had old-fashioned extortion case where letters were cut out of a magazine and glued to the paper, extorting somebody out of money, and uh, things like that that you only read about, and yet I actually get to work, and uh, some fantastic times, not to mention the camaraderie. Uh, you're meeting people that are similarly driven, 
Uh, there's no underachievers in the FBI to get in. The application process is pretty rigorous. Uh, you have to have done very well in school. You have to have been involved in things. You, you can't just go to class and that's it. You had to have been involved in your community and sports or something to show that you have activities and life experience. Nobody gets hired right out of college. Uh, minimum age is 23, but we still require you to have three years work experience. So you had to, to do something else. I worked with uh, one guy who was a literally a rocket scientist for NASA before he left that job to join the FBI. I worked with an attorney that was in a big firm that he actually owned a restaurant on the side because he was doing so well. He gave it all up to come work for the FBI. And back in the day, I think my starting salary was $30,000, which, you know, to somebody in college today may seem like a lot of money. That ain't a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're, uh, you know, you can, again, you will get increases and you'll make more money. You'll never get rich. You'll never starve. Uh, but the experiences can't be beat. And I, I know a lot of my friends that I went to law school with would easily trade everything if they could have joined the FBI instead, uh, because every day was different. Every day brought a different challenge. There were no two days that were alike. I got to do a lot of different things. So if I didn't want to work bank robberies anymore, I was working terrorism. I didn't want to work terrorism. I went to headquarters. Next thing I know, I'm a spokesperson for the FBI. So uh, it was great to have that kind of variety. And not a lot of jobs let you do that. Now that you say that, it makes me realize you have the opportunity to become an expert on all these topics. If you're interested in art forgery, you can get transferred to that division and become an expert on art forgery. And then you can transfer to another division and by the end of it, become this incredibly well-rounded person as far as what you know about the world. Exactly. So right now, the, uh, the term the FBI uses is subject matter expert. And I was deemed a subject matter expert in cyber, in terrorism, and in active shooting situations. So that's what I do now is I go out and I teach in corporate America how to keep yourself safe from any of these issues. So, and what I do is I talk about FBI stories because everybody loves hearing FBI stories. So every case I walk them through in lesson is based on a true FBI case. Uh, I also tell them some of the funny stories that uh, behind the scenes that you might not hear otherwise. Yeah, you, you've got a book you're working on that's filled with funny FBI stories. Can can you share one or two of those? Sure. And actually, the book's written. It's sitting with my agent right now who is uh, shopping for what publisher uh, will handle this one. I've had, thank you, I've got four others, but uh, we're looking at the next uh, publishing house. And the working title of the book is called Disorderly Conduct, my 20 years in the FBI and the people I worked with. And it's basically all the funny behind the scenes stories of uh, sometimes gallows humor, uh, sometimes a little odd, but uh, it's the things that uh, take place. Uh, so, for example, in the course of one of my investigations, I was investigating a bank robbery and my bank robber was... Uh, a part-time actor in a college play at the time when he committed the bank robbery. And I had tracked him down to the theater where uh, he was performing that night. Well, I'm curious, how did you discover he was an actor? Well, what I discovered was uh, this individual had dyed uh, his hair a particular color 
what I thought was to conceal his identity during the bank robbery. And uh, based on a couple of leads, uh, we were able to track him, uh, determine he may be a college student. And when I went to talk to people about him, said, oh, yeah, he's in the theater department. And as a matter of fact, he's in a play. He dyed his hair blonde for this uh, Greek tragedy that they're performing. So it was this uh, Greek tragedy, people wearing togas. And uh, it was a student written play that uh, was not very good. And uh, as I was sitting in the audience becoming bored with the play, I'm like, all right, I've waited long enough. My partner and I went backstage. And while the actor was out on stage performing a soliloquy, we, we walked out on stage and placed him under arrest, which confused the audience a little bit because uh, it was a Greek tragedy. But then two guys in dark suits come in and handcuff the actor. And I think uh, some of the audience thought it was part of the play because we actually got applause <laughs> when we took him off stage. So, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> you were like, he's not that bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you get moments like that that are just. Uh, Can you give one more funny story? Sure. I uh, so I had arrested a bank robber and this uh, uh, the bank robber was deaf. Uh, he he knew sign language, but he had no hearing at all. I had him in the back of my car, handcuffed, car doors open, and we're still processing the scene. I'm not ready to leave with them yet. And there was this defense attorney that I had clashed with a number of times and uh, on the witness stand, he represented criminals that I had arrested. So he comes walking along. He sees me with the subject in the back. He wants to push past me to speak to my client. Now, he doesn't know he's deaf, but he wants to give him legal advice, etc. And we've always had this very difficult relationship. But I decided to use the opportunity. I said, listen, I know we haven't gotten along in the past. Uh, this is really a hard case. Would you mind spending 10 or 15 minutes, you know, giving him the wisdom of your advice? And so he decided that he would do just that. He started going on lecturing my client, don't say anything to this agent, uh, telling him what his rights are and blah, blah, blah. And this went on for 10 or 15 minutes. And my guy in the back of the car is nodding, uh, to be polite. And then he, uh, he finally leans back out of the car and, he turns to me, he says, you know, maybe I've judged you wrongly. I, I, uh, that was really a good thing you did. He shook my hand and went on his way. And meanwhile, you know, my uh, subject in the back had no idea what he was saying. So uh, so I, I got to spend a little of the attorney's time and uh, amuse myself. So <laughs> but it's moments like that you you kind of live for. How did he respond when he found out what you did? I don't think he ever found out. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just never revealed that secret and let that one go. And uh, later on through the interpreter, the uh, the deaf subject that asked me who that guy was. And I, I said, I think he was someone who was kind of crazy. I thought he was a friend of yours. So and uh, just let it go. I would imagine there was another counsel who spoke to him before you interrogated him. Oh, uh, well, actually, we read him his rights and he agreed to speak with us, oh, okay. which is not not uncommon. Uh, a lot of people do. And uh, uh, many times they think they can help themselves, which they can, because if they want to be forthcoming and tell the truth, that's all going to work in their advantage. I mean, you committed a crime. There's going to be a penalty, but it could be much worse. And, uh, you know, I've had situations where guys were looking at 30 years based on the crimes they committed. But because they decided to cooperate, they wound up getting four or five years. The thing with the FBI is we may be slow, but we're thorough. And there's a reason we're slow. We take our time and gather all the facts. 
if you're being brought to trial, you're probably going to be convicted. And uh, because we wouldn't bring a case to trial unless we felt we can get a conviction. So it's a it's in your best interest not to commit the crime in the first place. But if you do, there's something to be gained by being cooperative. And the less you make us have to work and spend taxpayer dollars, the more it'll benefit you with the government. <laughs> That's good to know. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. Go with A, though, and don't commit the crime. That, that would be <laughs> my first choice. like to learn more about FBI Special Agent John Yonarelli, visit FBIJohn.com. You can learn more about his books and even hire him to consult for your company or speak at your events. That's FBIJohn.com. Next week, we'll talk with Leslie Howell, otherwise known as the Sloth Whisperer. She'll share how she went from a little girl growing up in Washington, D.C. to a woman taking care of hundreds of animals in the sanctuary she created in Costa Rica. You'll learn about animals you never knew existed, about the hardships of truly being the mother to baby sloths, and why taking all of your birds to the airport can lead to unexpected delights. That and more next week on Intriguing Interviews.